Happy New Year and welcome to the first Annals and Internal Medicine podcast of 2021. I'm Dr. Christine Lee, an Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I hope many of our listeners who are on the front lines of patient care have had their first dose of COVID-19 vaccine by the time you're listening to this podcast. It is a new year with a new vaccine, and we have a lot of new Annals material to share with you. Much but not all of it is about SARS-CoV-2, a new virus that over a year into this pandemic is starting to feel very old. In addition to deaths directly attributable to COVID-19, there is much concern about increased mortality indirectly related to the pandemic as people forego medical care for other conditions. Studies of excess deaths in the United States during 2020 have estimated a substantial excess of non-COVID-19 mortality. However, these studies have not fully accounted for changes in the underlying population structure and thus may have overestimated excess deaths in the U.S. population. The growth of the U.S. population, particularly in older age groups, means a higher expected number of deaths in 2020 from all causes, even in the absence of COVID-19. In the study reported in the first article I'll mention, researchers from the National Cancer Institute used data from the CDC National Center for Health Statistics and the U.S. Census Bureau to estimate excess mortality in the period March through August 2020. By accounting for the recent aging of the population, they found the number of excess non-COVID-19 deaths was 44,600, which is 65% fewer than estimated without accounting for population aging. The number of COVID-19 deaths during this period did not change with adjustment for population structure. According to the study authors, these excess deaths estimates may help guide clinical and public health interventions to prevent future unnecessary deaths by highlighting excess deaths by cause and age. Although indirect excess mortality is less than previously estimated, stemming the tremendous loss of life directly or indirectly due to COVID-19 is an urgent priority. Informed consent of participants is a foundational requirement of ethical research, yet informed consent exceptions may be acceptable when research poses no or minimal risk to participants or would be impractical to do without a waiver or alteration. Next is a commentary that discusses the challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic creates for these exceptions. The authors cite the example of a smoking cessation trial. Before the pandemic, their institutional review board had approved a trial comparing smoking cessation interventions among older underserved adults using opt-out consent. But because participants are required to submit samples in person, the act of submitting samples may be higher risk now than before the pandemic, and the IRB must determine whether the study remains minimal risk and appropriate for opt-out consent. Examples such as this one make it important for ethical review boards to revisit informed consent exemptions during the pandemic. College campuses have been a source of spread of SARS-CoV-2 infection. A modeling study from Brigham Women's Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Case Western Reserve University estimates the effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of a series of mitigation efforts to prevent COVID-19 cases on college campuses. The researchers use the clinical and economic analysis of COVID-19 interventions model to analyze mitigation strategies. They evaluated 24 mitigation strategies based on four approaches, social distancing, mask-wearing policies, isolation, and laboratory testing. The research team compared results from a minimal social distancing program in which only large gatherings such as sporting events or concerts were canceled 
and an extensive social distancing program where all large classes and 50% of smaller classes were delivered online. Laboratory testing ranged from no testing of asymptomatic students and faculty to routine testing at 14, 7, or 3-day intervals. Based on the model, combining a mandatory mask-wearing policy with extensive social distancing would prevent 87% of infections among students and faculty. Routine testing was also found to be highly effective at preventing infections in the model, but it may be cost-prohibitive for many colleges and universities. The researchers cautioned that even if campuses remained closed, there would likely be infections among faculty acquired from the surrounding community, as well as infections among students who returned to live off campus in and around college towns. Communities of color have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The paucity of public health messages that directly address communities of color might contribute to disparities in knowledge and behavior that lead to the disparities in outcomes. The next study evaluates the effectiveness of public health messages tailored for Black and Latinx communities. The researchers sought to determine the effect of physician-delivered COVID-19 prevention messages on knowledge and information-seeking behavior of Black and Latinx individuals and whether the effectiveness of the messages differed according to the race ethnicity of the physician and the tailoring of message content. Researchers from MIT Department of Economics randomly assigned over 14,000 Black or Latinx adults to view three video messages regarding COVID-19 that varied by physician race ethnicity, acknowledgement of racism and equality in the messaging, and references to community perceptions of mask wearing. Participants were asked questions about COVID-19 before and after viewing the videos and provided links to resources for additional information. Knowledge improved after viewing any of the videos similarly without any observed benefit of race concordance of the viewer and the physician messenger or message content. However, information seeking was higher among Black participants after viewing a message from a Black physician. The same was not observed among Latinx participants. The authors of an accompanying editorial from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Equity suggests that this study provides insight during critical time. As new vaccines against COVID-19 become available, and when so many lives are at stake, mistrust of institutions and science remains high, and we need to understand the characteristics of effective public health messages. And while on the topic of promoting uptake of COVID-19 vaccinations, I want to mention a program that Annals and the American College of Physicians hosted on December 16th to help prepare physicians and other healthcare professionals for the hard work of making sure sufficient numbers of people are vaccinated to end this pandemic. This was the second in a series of vaccine forums hosted by ACP and Annals of Internal Medicine. During the program, four experts offered their perspectives on the vaccine and current barriers to optimal uptake. Panelists included Dr. Ada Adamora from University of North Carolina, Dr. Helene Gale from the Chicago Community Trust, Dr. Peter Hotez from Baylor University, and Dr. Heidi Larson from the London School of Tropical Medicine. Dr. Ryan Meyer, a member of ACP's Board of Regents and a practicing internist in Nashville, and Dr. William Schaffner from Vanderbilt University moderated the discussion. Video of the program is available for viewing on annals.org, along with the opportunity to earn CME and MOC credit. During the forum, the panelists discussed the current vaccines, when and how they might be disseminated to patients, and the challenges ahead related to influencing public opinion about the safety of the vaccines. 
Panelists stressed the need to build trust among disproportionately affected minority communities to ensure adequate uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine. Every member of the panel agreed that a comprehensive public health communications campaign will be needed to promote the vaccine and refute the glut of misinformation that has been circulating online. The next article reports the results of a national survey of approximately 4,000 adults who live in households with firearms that found that fewer than 10% had ever discussed firearm safety with a clinician. Discussions about firearm safety were reported by 12% of respondents with children in their household compared to 5% of those who lived in households where there were no children. When conversations occurred, the most common advice given across all clinical settings related to safe storage of firearms. Of those that reported discussing firearm safety with the clinician, only 16% reported that removing firearms from the home for safety was discussed. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that there is considerable room for improvement when it comes to promoting firearm safety discussions in clinical settings. In light of recent evidence that patients are usually open to such conversations, addressing clinicians' concerns that these discussions will negatively affect the patient-physician relationship may be helpful in increasing the frequency with which firearm safety is addressed during clinical encounters. The next article suggests that Medicare's use of bundled payments may stimulate innovations in care delivery that extend to all patients, not just those insured under Medicare. Under the Bundled Payments for Care Improvement Program, bundled payments for lower extremity joint replacement are associated with 2 to 4% cost savings with stable quality among Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries. Whether these cost savings also benefit patients at the same institution with commercial insurance has not been studied. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania studied Healthcare Cost Institute claims from 2011 to 2016 to examine the association between hospital participation in the bundled payments program and lower extremity joint replacement outcomes for nearly 185,000 patients with commercial insurance or Medicare Advantage. Lower extremity joint replacement was chosen because it is the most common procedure among the 48 included in the bundled payments program. The researchers found that program participation was likely associated with modest decreases in episode spending, but not changes in 90-day readmissions among non-Medicare fee-for-service patients. The savings seemed to be driven by decreases in discharge to skilled nursing facilities. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that voluntary bundled payments may have prompted hospitals to implement practice changes that went beyond Medicare fee-for-service, and these changes could spill over into savings for all healthcare users nationwide. The findings also underscore the likely association between bundled payment participation and stable episode quality. Primary aldosteronism is a common cause of secondary hypertension and is highly prevalent among patients with treatment-resistant hypertension. Primary aldosteronism is associated with a 4- to 12-fold increased risk for adverse cardiovascular events compared with primary hypertension and can be effectively treated with mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist or surgery. Although clinical practice guidelines recommend screening patients with treatment-resistant hypertension for aldosteronism, it is unclear how frequently clinicians follow this advice. In the next new article, researchers from the University of Pennsylvania, Stanford University, and University of Michigan reviewed data from the Veterans Health Administration for more than 269,000 veterans with incident apparent treatment-resistant hypertension to evaluate testing rates for primary aldosteronism and evidence-based hypertension management. 
Treatment-resistant hypertension was defined as either two blood pressures of at least 140 milligrams of mercury systolic or 90 milligrams of mercury diastolic at least one month apart during the use of at least three antihypertensive agents, including a diuretic or hypertension requiring at least four antihypertensive classes. The data showed that fewer than 2% of patients with incident treatment-resistant hypertension underwent guideline-recommended testing for primary aldosteronism. Testing rates ranged from 0 to 6% across medical centers. Testing was also associated with higher rates of evidence-based treatment with mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists and better longitudinal blood pressure control. Testing rates also did not change meaningfully over nearly two decades of follow-up, despite an increasing number of guidelines recommending testing for primary aldosteronism in this population. According to the researchers, these findings suggest an opportunity to improve the care of persons with treatment-resistant hypertension. And the next article takes us from one common condition, hypertension, to another, knee osteoarthritis. Exercise with or without the assistance of a physical therapist has been shown to improve pain and function in persons with knee osteoarthritis, but many patients do not exercise. The authors of this article hypothesize that a stepped care model that moves from exercises a patient can do on their own to in-person physical therapy if they do not benefit from independent exercise might be an effective approach to tailor exercise to patients' needs. They randomly assigned 345 patients with painful knee osteoarthritis at two VA healthcare sites to stepped exercise program for patients with knee osteoarthritis or to arthritis education. The STEP program consists of a three-level intervention that progresses based on patient needs. If the internet-based exercise program in Step 1 was not effective, the patient moved to Step 2, three months of physical activity coaching calls twice per month. If arthritis symptoms still did not improve, the patient advanced to Step 3, in-person physical therapy visits. The arthritis education group received educational materials via mail every two weeks. After nine months, the researchers found that of the patients in the stepped exercise program, 65 progressed to step two and 35% went on to step three. The stepped care group also showed greater improvement in pain and function levels compared with the group that received arthritis education only. Next is a narrative review that provides an overview of studies that contribute to evidence about the effectiveness of masks in reducing community transmission of respiratory viral infections, including SARS-CoV-2. The literature largely involves laboratory studies with the filtering properties of different materials and observational studies of transmission of viruses other than SARS-CoV-2. The authors conclude that because we know that SARS-CoV-2 travels in the air in tiny droplets and particles, which are blocked to some extent even by imperfect cloth face coverings, wearing a face covering in a crowded indoor space is likely to reduce the chance that an infected person will pass the virus on to others. Also published is an update of a living systematic review of evidence evaluating the use of masks among laypersons in the community and healthcare workers for preventing the spread of respiratory virus infections, including SARS-CoV-2. The new evidence in this update includes a randomized trial that studied the protective effect of masks to the wearer in a setting where mask wearing was uncommon in the community, and two studies in healthcare settings. In the trial, mask use versus no mask use was associated with a small but not statistically significant reduction in risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection. The trial was not designed to assess the effect of mask use as source control. 
Because of the additional evidence provided by this trial, the authors of the Systematic Evidence Review updated their assessment of the strength of evidence that mask use reduces SARS-CoV-2 infection in the community from insufficient to low. With regard to mask use in healthcare settings and risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection, the authors identified two new cohort studies in addition to the three studies included in their initial review. However, both studies had major methodologic limitations, so the authors conclude that evidence for various comparisons about mask use in healthcare settings and risk for SARS-CoV-2 remains insufficient. The last new article I'll mention studied the effectiveness of state laws promoting influenza vaccination for hospital workers in preventing deaths from pneumonia and influenza. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has long recommended vaccinating healthcare workers, and several states have passed laws requiring that hospitals provide influenza vaccination on-site for their employees. But the effect of these laws on pneumonia and influenza mortality is unknown. Researchers from University of Georgia, Montana State University, and Monash University use quasi-experimental state-level longitudinal study designs to estimate the association of state hospital worker influenza vaccination laws with influenza and pneumonia mortality rates. They found that implementation of a state vaccination law was associated with a 2.5 reduction in the monthly pneumonia and influenza mortality rate during the years when the vaccine was well-matched to the circulating strains. This implies that during the 2016 to 2017 influenza year, when 15 states had implemented new laws, approximately 1,822 pneumonia and influenza deaths were averted because of the laws. The largest effects occurred among elderly persons and during peak influenza months. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that vaccination laws may be a good way to protect the country's most vulnerable populations. Finally, January 5th brought the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. In this episode, Dr. Center discusses the diagnosis and treatment of polymyalgia rheumatica and giant cell arteritis with Dr. Sebastian Cortez. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've mentioned and return in two weeks for the next podcast. And my Annals colleagues and I wish all of our listeners a happy and healthy 2021. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.